A quick salute to all our hidden listeners out there. Not just the nations of Russia and Belarus, which are closed to the larger world. To those tuning in from underwater alien bases scattered across the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. To the sunken remains of Atlantis, located somewhere in the Atlantic or Caribbean. Everyone still walking those dusky streets of El Dorado. The secretive people of Shangri-La. The quaint Welsh Pixies and Tommyknockers who occupy the lost British island of Avalon. Our gray listeners ensconced beneath the Air Force bases in Dolce, New Mexico. The reptilians dwelling in the limestone caverns of the Ozarks in Missouri. The good people of the lost continent of Mu and Lemuria. The Deros and Teros who live around the world, but especially underneath the streets of Paris, France. A warm hello to all from the mountains of Sakart Velo, that is the nation of Georgia, a country lost to both time and space. This is your host, Dane. And on this episode of the Spectral Skull Session, we will be talking about new mainstream scientific research showing that psychedelics can change your mind, not just in terms of how you feel, not just in terms of treating mental health problems, Psychedelics can change your metaphysical beliefs. What is a metaphysical belief? And if psychedelics can change your metaphysical beliefs, does that mean you should take them, or does that mean that maybe you should avoid them? All right, stay tuned for an amazing episode of the Spectral Skull Session. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations, or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. In 1954, English author Adelis Huxley published The Doors of Perception, an essay that chronicled how his spiritual and metaphysical worldview shifted as a result of his experiments with psychedelics. There, Huxley remarks, quote, At least one professional philosopher has taken mescaline for the light it may throw on such ancient, unsolved riddles as the place of mind in nature and the relationship between brain and consciousness. Ever since that best-selling book caught the imagination of the U.S. and Europe, the Western world has been fascinated with the idea of neurochemically-driven insight into the nature of ultimate reality. Now, we need to be careful because the word insight is normative. That is to say, it suggests that you're getting something that's true. A shift in your beliefs might be a more neutral way to describe what psychedelics do to the mind, But ever since Huxley, there's been an American counterculture 
that teaches you that the use of mind-altering substances is a way to get a different, perhaps more evolved, viewpoint on the structure of our world and our relationship to it. But for the counterpoint, consider the works of one of my favorite authors, science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, who frequently addressed the idea, the possibility that substances that alter the mind could be inducing delusions. For example, his novel, Through a Scanner Darkly, deals with a DEA agent who is stalking himself. Unbeknownst to the agent who narrates the book, he has become addicted to a drug that splits the personality into two. He has become both dealer and detective. In another Philip K. Dick novel, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, Dick introduces Candy, a drug that allows people to experience themselves as being transported into the body of a doll. The purpose of this drug is that it allows people to have vivid virtual reality type experiences that stave off the cabin fever of living on a dystopian space colony. So the idea of mind-altering substances being tools for helping us cope with life by compromising our access to reality is well established in the world of fiction. I certainly think we should not accept this idea psychedelics inherently promote either expanded or degraded consciousness. We should be neutral, especially as this is a show about possibilities. I want to ask, what does the picture of what psychedelics do to our minds look like if we unburden ourselves of the baggage of assuming either that they induce enlightenment, allowing us to access alternative worlds, or that they induce delusion, causing the user to develop a weirded out worldview. It turns out we do know something. We now know that psychedelics change what people believe about ultimate reality. They change people's philosophical views. So goes a new research publication. The article is literally titled Psychedelics Alter Metaphysical Beliefs. Now, by the way, metaphysics is a branch of philosophy that deals with the fundamental structure of reality. Certain key metaphysical questions are, what are the basic building blocks of reality? Do possible worlds exist? What is the relationship of consciousness to reality? Questions about the relationship of consciousness to fundamental reality are the questions that are most affected by psychedelics. Now, previous research has found that psychedelics can induce mystical experiences. So they can induce experiences that are profound, cannot easily be described in language, and seem to carry some kind of non-propositional information. So they teach you something about yourself or the world and don't teach it in a way that could ever be put into words. But this new study that's coming out is, as far as I know at least, the first one to find that psychedelics induce long-lasting changes in people's belief systems. Specifically, this article titled Psychedelics Alter Metaphysical Beliefs, authored by Chris Timmerman at the Imperial College New London, found that people who attend one or more psychedelic ritual events, this is an event that involves some kind of spiritual or ritualistic practice with a group of people that centers around the use of a psychedelic substance. These people had a shift in their beliefs away from beliefs that we would call materialism 
and towards a metaphysical viewpoint called panpsychism and also dualism, they also shifted towards a view called fatalism, which is a view that says that free will does not exist, or at least is not efficacious in determining most of our decision-making. So here's a little bit about how this study was structured, because it's very interesting. They advertised to people who were interested in attending retreats using psychedelics. Quote, respondents planning to attend a ceremony involving a psychedelic substance, in parentheses, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, truffles, ayahuasca, DMT, San Pedro, LSD, 1P-LSD. I don't know what that is. They found 800 such people who were about to attend a retreat. These people were then compared to another group of people who did not attend a retreat, but took a prescription antidepressant. Wow, that doesn't seem like a fair comparison at all. People who took mind-altering substances on a retreat were compared to people who just took a prescription antidepressant. Okay, so that's interesting. I would have preferred to compare people who attended a retreat on psychedelics to people who attended a retreat without psychedelics. Now, maybe I'm misreading something. Okay, I just double-checked, and yes, they compared people who were planning on attending a retreat where they would use psychedelics to people who were taking antidepressants for major depression. They asked both groups of people, the people on antidepressants and the people attending their retreat, to fill out a survey before their treatment had begun, then after the treatment had happened, I guess in the in the case of the people attending the ceremony, it's after they'd attended the retreat. In the case of the people on antidepressants, it was after they had started antidepressant therapy. Then they did the, another survey and asked them, well, what are your beliefs now? And then they did another six-month follow-up. They gave both groups of people a survey that they called the MBQ, the Metaphysical Belief Questionnaire, which seems to have been largely made up by these guys at Imperial College London. The survey asked 13 questions touching on topics such as idealism and solipsism, the degree to which the physical world is an illusion, transcendence, questions about whether the body or mind can move outside of the universe, dualism, the belief that the mind, excuse me, the belief that the mind and the body are distinct substances, monism, the belief there is only one fundamental subject, excuse me, substance out of which everything is made, belief that there are other worlds one can visit in a supernatural way, the notion that all mental events are due to brain activity, and panpsychism, the belief that mentality is a fundamental feature of the universe. So panpsychism is basically the idea that um, the universe is made of physical stuff, and one of these properties that the physical stuff has is mental, mental powers. So um, panpsychists will often hold like the universe is conscious. It's alive in some sense. And then we're um, just a part of the universe. And so we have maybe a more limited perspective. But um, ultimately, the universe has a perspective too. It is a big thinking thing. And I read in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, that another version of panpsychism is the view that all biological beings have some kind of consciousness. So this is just the idea that we're conscious and then animals are conscious too and bacteria are conscious in a way. The cells in your body might be conscious, you know, even though they're 
what constitutes you, they might have their own perspective. So simpler biological things may not have the rich way of seeing the world that you and I have, but they have some but they have some kind of phenomenological experience. There's something that it's like to be them. And that might seem really weird to you, but apparently that doesn't seem so weird to people who've taken psychedelics and attended a ceremony with other people taking psychedelics. It turns out it's normal or apparently widespread for a significant revision in one's beliefs in favor of panpsychism after attending a retreat. Six months later, belief in panpsychism had increased even more. So it's not like this was a temporary effect. Rather, the effect seems to consolidate after the, uh, the ritual. Here are some of the exact questions that they give you on the MBQ. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you agree with this statement? There exists another separate realm or dimension beyond the physical world that can be experienced and visited. Here's another one. Visiting such immersive realms or worlds can sometimes depend on a supernatural slash magical transition process or event. There's just one primary reality, colon, the mind and or consciousness, and all material things derive from it. Here is the panpsychist statement. Where is it? Here we go. Mind, consciousness, or soul is a fundamental quality of all things in the universe, either animate or inanimate. The participants tended to increase their confidence in that statement, in contrast to those who only took antidepressants. Their beliefs also shifted significantly towards dualism, the view that the mind and body are two distinct fundamental kinds of things. This view was famously lampooned by philosopher Gilbert Ryle in the early 20th century as the idea of a ghost in the machine. The idea that your body is like a machine, and then there's this ghostly thing, your mind, that sort of uh, clings to it. Overall, they increased the degree to which they agreed with all the items that asked about their belief in the non-physical world. So they became more confident in the existence of non-physical things they became less confident that the material world is the only world that exists. They even increased the degree to which they were confident in the existence of non-physical worlds, affirming there exists another separate realm or dimension beyond this physical world that can be experienced and visited, as well as the statement, visiting such immersive realms or worlds can sometimes depend on a supernatural slash magical transition process or event. But they were not more likely to agree with the statement, there are other realms of existence which are more important than everyday reality. That statement they initially did increase their agreement with in the immediate follow-up, but by six months later, they had regressed to baseline. But they also increased the degree to which they agreed with similar questions about the role of free will. People shifted towards the view that we don't have free will, and we can't use our mind to control our biological desires. This study went on to note that belief in spiritual substance, such as described by panpsychism, is associated with enhanced well-being. It's also associated with a personality that is more escapist. So a um, kind of person who deals with stress, not by addressing their problems, but by trying not to think about their problems and instead entertaining a rich fantasy or internal world. Of course, 
escapism isn't all bad. There are some problems you can't get away from. So it might be the optimal thing to do to retreat into a fantasy world, right? If you lose your legs and you're so depressed that you want to die, well, most people actually get over that eventually. But while you can't get over it, it might actually be healthy to engage in escapism, to say, well, you know, maybe I don't even have a physical body and this is all an illusion. And, um, you know, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Fatalism, similarly, seems to be a cognitive strategy at one level. So it's not just a view you can hold because you believe it's true. It's also kind of a, a way of dealing with reality. You can tell yourself, well, you know, I don't have any control. This is the way things had to be. I think that this is embodied in that song. It's the old American folk song. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The song which is apparently um, being sung according to the narrator of that very song. It's being sung to reassure a child not to worry about the future because, right, the future is just fixed and you don't have any control over it. That might be a healthy strategy to use if you're indeed unable to control your life like you're in prison or something or you've done something really bad and you can't deal with the psychological stress of having done it. But it also makes people more passive. They're less likely to try to improve their lot in life if they are fatalists. So it sounds like, according to this research article, they're saying we're seeing changes in what people believe, and some of those changes are correlated with enhanced well-being. Some of them are, are correlated with what we might consider to be pathological attitudes, right? So fatalism can be pathological. If you're able to change your life, make improvements in your life, it can be pathological to say, I don't have any control. It's bad because you could be a lot better off. I think that's what they're saying in this article. Okay, it's also worth noting the degree to which the beliefs changed was found to correlate with the participants' experience during the retreat. So this is huge. Um, they asked people about their experience on the retreat and they measured the degree to which people felt like they were emotionally in sync with their other participants. People who were emotionally in sync with other participants had a much higher rate of belief change. They also found that people who have a personality that tends to be more towards conformance, they changed their beliefs more. And they found women increased their beliefs more than men. They found that part of what explains that is that women tend to be more conformist than men, but they also found an independent factor. Independently, gender also just contributed directly to the degree to which a person's beliefs change during these ceremonies. So it sounds like there's some evidence to suggest the ceremony itself played a big role in belief change. It's not just that people were taking psychedelics, although that certainly may be a factor, um, but the ceremony itself had some kind of role. And this is where we need to note, among people who take psychedelics in a religious context, there do tend to be a lot of these panpsychist type beliefs. So people tend to believe more in the role of consciousness and the power of the mind. Also, they tend to be more fatalistic in these cultures. And so it's hard to know whether psychedelics even contributed independently at all to the belief change or whether it's just people change their beliefs because they had a very intense experience alongside a bunch of people who have a particular worldview. If you have an intense experience alongside other people 
who have a different worldview from you, you're likely to adopt some or all of their worldview. It's called bonding. People bond through intense experiences with others. And bonding tends to cause you to change the way you see the world. So, have we any evidence that psychedelics actually alter our metaphysical beliefs? It's hard to say because on one hand, we know that there's a whole culture of psychedelic users and it's hard to imagine somebody participating in that culture without being open to it and its worldview. But there's also the historical phenomenology of psychedelic use. Users report feeling disconnected from their bodies or disengaged from them, their self or no longer identifying solely with their body as themselves, merging with the universe. These kinds of things are consistent with the belief change that they found in this research study. Well, there's certainly some kind of chicken and egg problem here. In an apparent attempt to address that, the study looks at uh, some more research. They cite a 2019 article titled Rebus and the Anarchic Brain colon, toward a unified model of the brain action of psychedelics. This is a theoretical paper that argues that um, a model called Rebus explains how psychedelics cause beliefs to change. This Rebus model basically holds that your beliefs are a function of two different kinds of inputs. The first is your, your prior commitments, so what you already believe. And then, two, your current inputs. You know, you get new in data all the time. Your beliefs are formed by kind of like averaging between what you believed in the past and what your senses are telling you now. For example, for example, recall the scene in the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones has to force himself to step out onto the cliff, right? He knows from his uh, archaeological deductions that there's a path that will allow him to cross, but he can't see it because there's an optical illusion there that makes it invisible. So he has to just calls it an act of faith, but really in that that episode, that scene in that movie, it's um it's his prior commitments, his belief that he's a good archaeologist and able to make reliable inferences that allows him to put his foot out even though his sensory data is telling him, dude, you're going to die, you're going to fall. So that's a clear illustration of the Rebus model, where your beliefs are an average of your prior commitments and your current sensory data input. Now here's where the Rebus model interacts with psychedelics. According to this model, psychedelics just shift the weightings in your belief formation system. So your prior commitments get weighted less and your current inputs get weighted relatively more. And so that allows you to change your beliefs on psychedelics. This reminds me of uh, Timothy Leary and how he talked about how set and setting were very important for the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. He felt you needed to sort of plan an event almost a ritual, but for him it didn't have to be a ritual, it just had to be, you had to plan when you did psychedelics to uh, be in a pleasant setting, and then you had to have some kind of um, mindset. And he felt that if you were in that particular mindset and in a pleasant setting when you did psychedelics, you could sort of reprogram yourself. You could choose the way you wanted to reprogram yourself. This is seeming to confirm that by saying, while a person is on psychedelics, their belief formation processes temporarily shift away from prior commitments. So that can help you see how psychedelics could help a person 
who is very depressed. Depressed people are often um, depressed because they're stuck. At least partially what we explain depression in terms of being stuck in a negative mindset. Maybe you have beliefs that are unhealthy. You believe that you're no good, that you can't change. Uh, And so it would be helpful if you have a bunch of really negative beliefs to take a substance that causes you to de-emphasize those beliefs and just kind of pay attention to what's around you. Because what's around you is at least neutral, right? It's just, it just is. It's just, you see things, you hear things, and it would be good for you to pay more attention to those things if you've got a really negative mindset. So that's how Rebus explains the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. But this paper isn't chiefly about the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. It's about changes in beliefs. Uh, I'm, I'm unclear how the Rebus model is supposed to explain the shift in beliefs under psychedelics towards panpsychism, dualism, belief in all supernatural reality, uh, because the Rebus model just says that, well, you pay more attention to what's happening now than you do your prior commitments when you're on psychedelics. We also need an independent new input. The psychedelics would have to change your inputs. They would have to give you the experiences that are consistent with dualism, panpsychism, the existence of an independent supernatural reality. So um, I don't know, maybe they just didn't do a very good job of explaining how their Rebus model is supposed to work, but it sounds like that's what they're, they're hinting at when they wrote this paper. Psychedelics take you on a sort of funhouse ride and also put you in a temporary state of naivete or openness to that experience that causes you to temporarily become very receptive to the weird ideas you have or the weird experiences you have while on them. Although when I say weird there, I just mean in the sense that it's unusual because I don't think there's anything weird about the belief that the mind is a different substance from the body. Um, Panpsychism is a well-respected philosophical position and the belief in the existence of supernatural worlds would have been quite normal looking at humanity historically. And then I suppose that they're they're suggesting with the studies that then that naivete consolidates It becomes sort of stabilized and um, sticks around after you've stopped using the substance. Alternatively, the Rebus model could explain how attending psychedelic ceremonies alters a person's metaphysical beliefs in another way. If you combine the idea that psychedelics cause a shifting in the weightings of your beliefs with the idea that you're on this in the ceremony, and the ceremony involves some kind of programming, right? You're getting... Um, a new idea about the world from other people who are attending this event. Boy, it'd be really helpful to know more about what these ceremonies involved, wouldn't it? I mean, if clearly, if you go to the ceremony and like it involves just chanting over and over, panpsychism is true. <laughs> you chant that for three hours while you're on LSD. Then yeah, I guess that would really explain why your beliefs would shift towards panpsychism um, because you just change your your, your weightings towards uh, your current inputs away from your prior, your prior commitments. I would really like to know which rituals were involved in the ceremonies that these psychedelic, um, psychedelic users attended. It certainly could be that psychedelics help people wake up and see the world differently, have expanded consciousness. This is what people like Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson believed. And uh, I just don't know what to say. But let me move on to return to a cautionary viewpoint 
This article, this research article that Christopher Timmerman is the chief author of, also notes, quote, One popular historical narrative is that spiraling psychedelic use in the 1960s catalyzed countercultural views and activities that provoked prohibitionist, excuse me, prohibitionist policies, which effectively suspended research and clinical therapeutic work with these compounds. Recent evidence suggests that psychedelic use has increased exponentially in the last decade in the U.S. and is set to scale up further due to increasing public interest and liberalizing policies on access. End quote. So here the authors are themselves uh, referencing this idea that widespread ritualistic use of psychedelics is going to induce social change. We may not be comfortable with this social change. There could be large-scale effects that are unpredictable when it comes to psychedelics being part of our culture. And on this note, guys, I think this is absolutely something we need to be aware of and thinking about. I did an interview for this show with a man who runs an ayahuasca retreat down in South America. Very tragically, this man died after the interview and before I could secure um, consent form from him. I needed him to sign a form about releasing the show. And so he has died, he has died tragically, and, um, we will never be able to release that episode. So that's being destroyed. But, um, he did tell me that he has it on good authority that underground ayahuasca retreats are becoming widespread in New York and Los Angeles, all around the American coasts. And so, um, yeah, people are getting into this stuff and they are attending, like I said, ritualistic events involving them. It will be hard to predict how this affects American culture. And, it, you know, it could easily be that given all this research suggesting there's therapeutic effects of psychedelics, it could be good for individuals. Um, we know that, for example, people commit suicide at a much, much reduced rate when they use psychedelics. Um, and dramatically, when you compare psychedelics to uh, like alcohol and cocaine, heroin. So when you compare addictive drugs to psychedelics, which are apparently non-addictive, um, there's a dramatic difference in the suicide rate. So that suggests that psychedelics could have some really positive positive effects. But now I'd like to turn to a final thought, and that is this. Should you, knowing that psychedelics seem to have this potential to change your metaphysical beliefs, does that mean you should go out and do them? So my main thought here is that we should try as much as possible to believe what is true. Think that um, we should aim to guide our beliefs in a way that they, they should match reality, right? So um, wishful thinking, in my view, has some pragmatic value. And sometimes if your life is bad or if things are really uncertain, where you don't know what real, you don't have any access to what's true, you, you can be forgiven for engaging in wishful thinking. And in fact, I should go further. I actually think in the absence of good empirical data to believe one thing or another, you're entirely justified 
and believing what is wishful. But when what when reality says one thing and your wishes say another, I think you should guide your beliefs by reality. And I just think, um, you know, our wishes are fickle and they change and we're better off trying to conform our minds to the real world than the other way around. So that's my guiding thought. Let me make an argument. Here's how this argument goes. One, consciousness expansion, if it exists, would include, by definition, forming a more nuanced and accurate representation of reality. Two, psychedelic beliefs shift, excuse me, two, psychedelics shift people's beliefs away from materialism and towards beliefs like panpsychism. Three, there are philosophical arguments for and against both materialism and panpsychism. Four, if you believe materialism is true and panpsychism is false or implausible, then you ought to believe that psychedelics undermine consciousness expansion. You could say that they cause consciousness shrinkage. So if you really believe the universe is made of material things and consciousness is a trivial or even unreal phenomena, then you ought to believe a substance that inclines you to believe in panpsychism and to dismiss materialism is a substance that causes permanent delusion. On the other hand, if you do believe panpsychism is true or plausible, do you think materialism is false or implausible, then I would think it would be reasonable to conclude that psychedelics facilitate consciousness expansion, at least on the basis of this article that we've seen from Christopher Timmerman, or let me say this, at least attending psychedelic retreats in the United States of America would facilitate consciousness expansion. But the main gist of the argument that I'm trying to make here, it seems to me that we, if we, if we value believing what's true, we ought to try to figure out what we think about metaphysics before we start experimenting with psychedelics. So I would encourage you, everyone out there, before you attend one of these retreats, you know, at least read the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on panpsychism. Or maybe going further, why not hire a philosopher to give you some personal advice, talk you through the arguments for and against materialism, panpsychism. Also remember fatalism, because people became more fatalistic after doing psychedelics. If you want to do some deeper reading, I would encourage you to look at works like the works of René Descartes, a French philosopher who questioned whether the mind and body were independent substances. Also Spinoza, who was a literal panpsychist. I'd also encourage you to look at Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, who has a very popular argument called the evolutionary argument against naturalism, which uh, argues against materialism. Very good argument. I've actually written a graduate-level research paper on, on that. I think the evolutionary argument against naturalism is pretty good. So I would take a look at that. And so, um, you know, also, I'm going to be writing a book. Got a book coming out, although probably in the next year. Tentatively titled, Philosopher's Guide to the Occult, colon, How to Stay Sane While Exploring the Strange and Unexplained. I will have a whole chapter on panpsychism, dualism, 
materialism, and what you need to know before you engage in possible consciousness expansion using psychedelic drugs. So my main message here, everybody, if you value believing what's true, figure out what's true before you have strange experiences, rather than allowing your strange experience to dictate what you believe. That's my take anyway. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Dane signing off. Until next time, stay strange and stay sane.